Before taking the material out of the box, it is important to wash your hands. Washing your hands is a sanitary method of preventing infection and illness from transferring onto the comics. To wash your hands, place one hand under the faucet while you gently turn the water on. Once the water has started, transfer your other hand to your first hand, also referred to by some experts as the default hand. Moisten the hands. Apply soap. Rinse the soap off. Repeat if necessary. Once the process has concluded, find a blower or a stack of paper towels. Dry your hands. If you need help in drying your hands, look for a bathroom attendant. Do not, repeat, do not ask a stranger for help in drying your hands. He may steal your wallet or molest you or ruin your day in some small yet carefully calculated manner. It is also important not to pick your nose or play with yourself shortly before handling the comics, as this may transfer additional disease and you will need to begin this process again. Remember to use caution in handling comics. Remember to wash your hands. Okay, so I am here with Chris Ware, who is most recently the writer, illustrator, creator of Building Stories. Chris, how are you doing? I'm fine. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So, you know, I have to first of all ask, is there any specific significance to the date September 23rd, 2000? I do know that a baseball player named uh, Aurelio Rodriguez died that particular day, and I was wondering... Oh, is that true? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. No, I picked it just simply because it seemed like a date that was not... Uh, didn't really have any meaning to it, so yeah. it's, uh, it's just sort of a random day. So okay. yeah. Cool. Well, let's talk about um, the, the role of technology in building stories. I mean, we see that you have a concern for its effect on everyday life, ranging from the Facebook searches for lost boyfriends. You got this one-page stark illustration of, of course, this unnamed woman with the leg. She's standing naked before her husband. And her husband is there with the iPad, also naked, not paying attention to her at all. Right. Um, and then, of course, you have this really terrifying last page augmented reality future where they can't even spell fuck right. <laughs> so, um, well, you, a, know, you know, this would suggest, I think, um, a deep pessimism, I think, on your part for how technology is affecting uh, life and so forth. And here you have a collection of 14 various pamphlets ranging from something very small to uh, almost a newspaper size and uh, is this really what we have to do now we have to, in order for literature and comics to survive do we now have to create massive physical palpable forms in order to get people off of this highly addictive technology that has encroached itself into culture all around us for the last five years uh, no I don't think so I mean um, it is a little disturbing uh, the amount of time that we spend increasingly staring into these glowing pits in front of us. Uh, just simply standing out on the street here, the number of people who are looking at the palms of their hands is, yeah. is probably a higher percentage of people doing that than actually looking up. And I think the gesture for trying to remember something now has changed from looking above one's head to slapping one's pocket. Yeah. Um, but it's really not that different from what adults do anyway, which is not necessarily looking at the world around them, but looking into their own past or thinking about their future and simply just kind of navigating the world in as if, it, you know, it, just trying to get through the world but while worrying about the past and thinking about the future. Yeah. Um, but I don't, I don't think it's, it's necessary to, to try to make something, uh, I don't know what word I could use here. As elaborate, I guess, is what I've tried to do. Yeah. 
Uh, but at the same time, why not? I mean, paper can do things that screens cannot. So, and I've, I've tried to take advantage of that with the book. And there's, a, there's a, we're at a moment right now too where there, certain experiences or the way that we get knowledge about the world has been attached to certain shapes and forms. And those shapes and forms are disappearing. And it, it seemed yes. to me just like a possibility for maybe a slight sense of poetry and using those shapes and forms as a physical way of imparting a sense of life or everyday experience. So Yeah. So shapes and forms in the form of paper, old forms, are the way to counter the sort of conformed technological forms. I mean, that actually the, the housing of the form is probably going to get through to people more than the elaborate sort of Tuftian graphs you off, you've often had in your work. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, so that, 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 you think this is going to be a solution? Do you think paper will exist? Do you, do you have to actually change as a illustrator, as a cartoonist, as an artist in order to, you know, woo people's attention? Well, no, I mean, I, it's, I, I grew up at a time where I, I was, I read everything on paper and I, I don't have a, a sentimental attachment to it. I don't, I don't actually, I've never subscribed to a newspaper in my life. I've always read the newspaper either on the, in, just simply on the internet or uh, picked it up here and there. Even though I come from a, a long line of newspaper editors and publishers, my mom was a reporter and an editor. My grandfather was a editor and my great-great-uncle was a publisher who actually won a Pulitzer Prize for an essay in, I think, 1911. So it's in my blood, but I, I feel that it's not it's no longer the most efficient way of of disseminating important up-to-date information newsprint was for a long time it was a almost kind of a fiber optic cable but it's now it's not so it's great for art though so i think art needs a certain kind of containment and it needs a certain kind of of containment to it because so much of the things that one writes about as a novelist or tries to get at sometimes as an artist are so ineffable and uncontainable that they almost need this sort of certain form to kind of stop them or something or freeze them. So, I mean, this leads me to ask, I mean, did you have to learn a lot about materials and publishing for building stories, or did you have someone shepherding this for you? I mean, how did you decide upon the forms for building stories, which are essentially things that are collected from the Acme Novelty Library, as well as a few new things, as far as I know. How did you decide upon the forms, and what research did you do in sort of, you know, making sure that they would stick together or would be lasting to counter the, I suppose, the end of newsprint era that we now have right. to live in? Well, everything in the book is made out of the exact same paper, which is uh, intentional. Yeah. Uh, and they're almost all coverless with the exception of a couple. And that's also intentional. Yeah. Um, the I didn't really have to research much. I've been self-publishing my own hardcovers yeah. now and comics for a while, and I'm, I'm, I've actually dealt directly with printing companies, so I'm more or less familiar with how those things are put together. But for this particular project, the production manager at, at Pantheon handled all of that for me and was able to make it work. But I just simply gave him very specific parameters for the size and paper that I wanted to use, and he accommodated me essentially. He's a very nice guy, Andy Hughes. Yeah. So, so why did you uh, move to self-publishing? I was always curious about that. I, I was sort of uninspired, I guess, uh, at a certain point, and uh, and I felt more that if I'd published something myself, it would feel closer to art the way it had early on, and uh, I felt like I was taking the whole risk myself at that point. So uh, you wanted to be a control freak. 
Well, somewhat, yeah. And it, it, but at the same time, if, if there were any mistakes, they were entirely mine. I was, I was solely the product of my hand. It just simply felt more like art. I was making something specifically and giving it to someone. It didn't go through a publisher. It was less of a product and more of a thing. So, so, so what you're creating in a lab, I actually, well, there's, there's tons of questions I have to ask you about layout and so forth. But let's start with, like, I was cu always curious about your small microscopic rectangular panels that are often in your work. I mean, I'm wondering if part of your attraction to this is because you're interested in, in communicating the maximum amount of information with the minimum amount of detail. Mm -hmm. is, is, is this kind of the allure for you? I yeah, mean, somewhat, it, yeah. I mean, and, and the reason that I use square panels is simply because the page is square. So yeah. they're reflective of the shape of the object itself in the same way that a, you know, a leaf of a tree is somewhat reflective of the shape of the tree itself. But that's not unusual. That's the way all cartoonists work. I think it's just a, it's the way it's been handed down to us. Uh, but. So the building that is at the base of these of building stories, I mean, was this based off of any particular building? Or? It's sort of a synthesis of two buildings that I lived in in Chicago uh, before my wife and I moved to Oak Park, Illinois. The, uh, but the inhabitants are completely imaginary, but... Uh, yeah. Are they based off of floor plans and layouts that you wandered through or lived in throughout yeah, the time? Yeah, it's sort of a it's sort of a it's a combination of the exterior of the second building we lived in and the floor plan of the first that I lived in. So, which you know really means nothing to yeah. anyone except me. So, but yeah. How much did the building dictate the dimensionality of the characters? Like, for example, there's this couple who's unhappy, and of course we see that pretty much all the walls and are, are painted blue. And I'm wondering if the blue room or perhaps like a yellow background may have influenced where you were going with the characters. Had you thought many of them out in advance? Huh. Yeah, no, I thought them out, but uh, I did not think of the colors as having any influence on the narrative. I guess if, if anything else, it was just simply a way of color coding the various uh, floors of the building itself. So, yeah. um, so. I, I mean, you know... I find that Charles Burns and I were just talking about this recently, that sometimes when we sit drawing, we realize that we completely lose where we are in space and, and time. Yeah. It, it, when I'm sitting at a table, sometimes I'll forget what room in the house I'm in, or if I'm even in the house that I'm in, that I'll even imagine for a second I'm in the apartment that I used to live in. And Charles was saying that he would recently had, had uh, found himself thinking that his sister's room was right around the corner the way it had been when he was a child. And I think that's an experience that everyone has, certainly. I mean, it's certainly what starts off Proust. And when, and when you fall asleep, you, you tend to lose a sense of where you are. When you wake up in the morning, sometimes you can be you don't have any idea where you are. You have to sort of recalibrate yeah. yourself. So um, That sort of temporal drift, I think, uh, informs many of the stories that are in here, uh, especially the thin stripped one where there's no words whatsoever. It's all about motherhood. Uh -huh. We see the passage of time throughout that. And I'm wondering, you know, does this often inform how you organize, say, a story along those lines? Do words often get in the way? Uh, does time sometimes more of an allure than, than words or dialogue or even blank speech bubbles? Well, in that case, it was an attempt to try to get at a sense of the, the sort of general activities that one might go through during a day. And if I used words, then the, the segments would be too specific and seem too much like a slice of actual reality, where I was trying to get more at a sense of a general repetition, as well as getting a sense of time passing very rapidly. The, the strip was inspired by a comment that my friend Ira Glass, the um, radio reporter and... and I shouldn't say radio reporter, the producer and 
inventor and progenitor of this American life. The, yeah. you know, well, this American very life has well journalistic known. standards. You can oh, call him oh, no, he's yeah. a, he's a, I mean, he's a great journalist. He's, he's, uh, he's broken many stories for which I think he doesn't get adequate credit. But um, or I was just telling him one day over lunch how quickly it was that children grow up and how fast time seems to pass. And he looked up at me and he just said, cliché. And I thought, wow, I'm just trying to tell you a story here, you know, but I, it's, it is actually true that it is yeah. kind of a cliche. So I, I tried to, to write the strip in such a way that it maybe wouldn't be such a cliche and to try to get it a sense of how the time passes rapidly, how it almost it seems like in one day your children grow up. So One, one of the, the minor frustrations or the great desires, but, I, but a very pleasant frustration is, of course, not knowing the names of these characters, mm -hmm. especially when you include little editorial notes about you know other names of supporting characters who we don't actually see. Uh -huh. um, you know, we know the names of supporting characters, but not these particular characters. Um, is the idea here to sort of you know not include the reader, or to I mean to suggest that no matter how close we can get to people, we'll still essentially be strangers? Somewhat, yeah, that is true. Uh, at the same time, the book is supposed to without giving too much away it's supposed to be a sort of a dream object yeah. and I've noticed that in my dreams that I don't ever seem to quite have a name I seem to be more of an entity I know who I am yeah. but sometimes I'm not entirely sure but I don't ever remember anybody saying my name in dreams which isn't to say that nobody else has that experience so that's part of the reasoning behind not having the name the main character name oh, plus if as soon as you apply or give a, a name to somebody it starts to define him in a very peculiar way and you don't want your characters to be entirely defined well no just in this particular story the entire story is filtered through the mind of the of the, of the woman on the third floor of the yeah. building so so do, do you have secret names at all or have you resisted no I actually don't I, the notes I have are just vague I know who I'm writing about but there's no names yeah. There, w there was one part of the story where she was referred to as a nanny, and I took that out uh, because uh, it seemed like too much of a name for her, so I didn't want that in there. So. so putting her in like a flower shop and the whole nanny story, I mean, do you run the risk of defining the character by vocation? Is well, that, sure. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I run the risk of defining the character simply by drawing her or putting clothes on her yeah. or having her, you know, move in a certain way. But, um, yeah, that's a legitimate question. But there's something about naming. There's something of the human mind. Once you name something, you, there's a certain mystery that gets closed down. You sort of cease to see it in a way. And, I mean, I think that affects our perceptions in a sort of a maybe not a very favorable way. Yeah. I was sitting on a train recently and looking out the window. We stopped... And there's a very peculiar flowers that grow in Illinois that grow up about two feet tall, and they're kind of this long kind of post of flowers. They're kind of ugly, and they, they just grow all along the railroad tracks. And I thought, what kind of, what is that flower? And I looked on my iPhone for Illinois Railway Flowers. And, of course, there's some website devoted to Illinois Railway Flowers. And I found out what it was called. And then finding out what it was called all of a sudden dispelled the mystery. It's ridiculous. Like, I don't have to know what anybody calls it. It doesn't. But for some reason, wanting to know what everybody else thought about it somehow helped define it for me. Even though, really, yeah. I'm not learning anything about it. So. I feel that way about SoundCloud. Which is, uh, there's this app called SoundCloud. It's on Android, and I believe there's an, there's an, I have an Android. 
I just got one, and, and I'm now part of this terrible leaguered masses of smartphones. But you can go ahead and go into a bar or cafe. I, I click the button, and it will actually tell me what the song is. Oh, boy. Yeah. I see. So that, that, maybe this is Flower Cloud in this case. Right. Yeah. Well, there's very few experiences that one has an adult where you don't actually understand what you're looking at. Yeah. And the world is sort of, we, especially when you live in a city, everything is, you pretty much understand everything except for maybe the things that are for sale in the shop windows or some of the clothes that you see, which is part of the excitement of fashion because seeing something you maybe aren't quite familiar with is exciting but when you, you know if you're maybe driving and you see something in the street and you can't oh god is it a cat is it a rag is it a cat is it a rag oh it's only a rag then is that sort of weird moment where you're not sure what you're looking at that's uh we do that a lot as children but not necessarily as adults so. well the, the uncertainty is what creates imagination i mean what is the future of existence if we can immediately put up our phones and find out what something is, then we yeah. lose the ability to sort of suggest it what it is. Yeah, no, I guess Did that's you, true. Can comics yeah. kind of find, find a way to solve this problem? Or? I don't know. I, uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, comics in a way kind of use that mental process to retell stories and to try to make them fresh. I mean, comics yeah. are, a, are a, reduc a visually reductive medium that tries to take the sort of visual approximations that we use to understand the world, put them on the page and use them as a language in the way that we yeah. we see words in our minds. So, but. Well, Branford the Bee is interesting because this not only exists outside the apartment, but it also exists within the context of the storybook. Mm -hmm. So it's somewhere between in this kind of halfway house of imagination and reality. And um, while it's also a great way of sandwiching Branford into the massive building stories, um, you know, I'm wondering, you know, at what point was the spirit of Branford kind of hovering over all the characters when you were putting this together? That's interesting. Um, well, those stories themselves are supposed to reflect uh, the sort of stories that one tells as a parent to one's children. Sure. And the mental processes I went through in coming up with stories for my daughter on the way to school on the sort of narrative path that I could have taken but didn't take because, of course, I'm speaking to a five or six or seven-year-old girl and I... I want to curtail it a little bit and provide a funny story, but maybe some slight moral lesson within it. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't, you know, I don't know how to say anything beyond that. So you were well, maybe you were just fond of drawing circles. Well, yeah, somewhat. I mean, it's it's certainly easier to draw. It's and the, I mean, essentially, the whole book is about empathy and trying to understand other people. And I find that when I'm at the zoo for a really long time, and I look at animals for a long time, and then I come home or I might see a cat or a dog or something, I feel a very peculiar connection to the cat or the dog that I might not have otherwise felt. Because it's something that had been going on in my mind to try to understand those animals in a way that puts me in a more sympathetic and empathetic mode. And I think that's really what the whole point of artwork is. Yeah and storytelling so this leads me to ask because your artwork is so precise and so clean and so specific how do you account for this empathy we're talking about or getting that emotional feel if it's so rigorously precise you know where does the spontaneity come from for you the spontaneity comes in the writing and the and the and the drawing not in the delineation of the clarity i simply want it to be as readable and clear as possible um, in the same way that a book is printed in clear typography. I don't, I don't think a book would be any more moving if the typography was, seemed to be more expressive or somehow more tentative or naive. It would almost seem kind of uh, corny or possibly sentimental. So 
that's not to say that that certainly can't work in comics. That's that's one whole side of it that I just simply don't feel aesthetically sophisticated enough to deal with. I tried to when I was younger, but I found that I couldn't as well. So I decided to try to simply write as clearly and draw as clearly as I possibly could and then to have stories that were as confused as uncertain and uncertain as I find my own life to be. So you still operate from a great place of uncertainty? Oh, yeah, very much so. Do you often sort of um, avoid some, like, for example, the blue thought circles or the flashbacks or some of the charts? I mean, like, Acme number 20, you have a character where it's a, a year every page. Do new formalistic experiments along those lines help you embrace that uncertainty more effectively uh, or to keep things new? I mean, how, how does this work? Somewhat. Again, it's just an attempt to try to understand or empathize with the character to try to see human life from a different vantage point to try to see things from above or around or below or all sides at once so how have things changed for you you used to be doing a weekly comic do you feel that having a sort of unlimited time to basically do whatever you want that this is more liberating for you do you just require a lot uh, more more thought right now or does some kind of deadline help you to produce additional work or or get things moving deadlines were really valuable to me when I was young and especially self-doubting and I'm still self-doubting but yeah. I realized at a certain point that I, the pressure had gotten so much and I knew that my wife and I were going to have a kid that yeah. I, I just couldn't do it anymore and raise a child at the same time so I decided that if I couldn't somehow do it on my own and on my own schedule then I shouldn't I had no business doing it at all so yeah. though lately I have sort of wondered maybe I maybe I should have a weekly deadline again maybe it would help somewhat but I, I I don't I don't really have the um, obstacles necessarily to get over as much as I used to when I was younger I know more of what I the stories are I want to tell and the things I want to write about so so you what what's your sort of self-disciplinary regimen these days anything or it's just an, what, whatever strikes your fancy it's <laughs> entirely predicated on the Oak Park public school system I, yeah. I take my daughter to school and I come home and work and when her school day is over I pick her up so that's, uh, and then maybe after she and my wife go to sleep, I might work after that. But more often than not, it's it's difficult for me to, to get back sitting down and drawing again. So. so how much time do you really have to observe the human world as a father <laughs> and with this kind of setup? You know, I mean, you obviously, I mean, it seems to me that you're you're moving deeper into character complexity with building stories. And you're interested you. in showing people who, yes, have problems, but also have virtues who have loneliness, but who also have a great uh, ability to connect in their own weird way. And so, you know, this leads me to ask, like, what you're doing these days to observe people or find how people walk down the street or so forth. I, well, I, when I pick up my, my daughter from school, I sit on the playground with her and talk to the other, you know, moms on the playground or talk to her teachers or see other kids or, I, you know, I... I I think that in a lot of I'm I'm actually very lucky because a, a lot of parents, a lot of even my daughter's friends' parents work from eight until five o'clock, and the, the time that they get to see their children seems so limited to me. It seems almost painful or tragic yeah. in a way. So uh, I feel very lucky actually that, that I get to spend so much time with my daughter. And when she was younger, I I would spend all day with her sometimes before she went to school. So so Acme is that sort of sense of time. That you know you're going to have an, a new Acme every year or some such. Or? I was trying to do them every year, but I, now I'm just doing them as I finish them. I don't. Yeah. And I feel so impossibly, incredibly lucky to be able to 
do what I want as I as I do it. It's it's a it's like a it's a a privileged position that I almost I don't feel worthy of in a lot of ways. I uh, it, it's uh, yeah it's, I feel lucky. So but I I try to work as hard as I can. So. In light of the fact that form is a big issue for you, uh, are there any aborted forms, either as a self-publisher or through some other project that you've attempted that have not worked out, that just were not meant for what you do? Uh, anything you want to try? Uh, not really. I, uh, I almost had a sort of experimental TV show a few years ago, which uh, I'm, I'm, I think I'm pretty glad didn't happen because I, I don't think I would have been able to handle it very well. I find it very difficult to work with anybody else, and that's not a function of my uh, wanting to have things my way, but more a function of I just I couldn't imagine telling other people my stupid ideas and yeah. waiting for their like some little hint of their reaction, like a like a wince in their eye or a, or a slight smirk. I just wouldn't be able to deal with that. So I, I sort of feel like it's. Uh, I have to do it all myself. I have to be sort of the. I have to take all the blame for it in a way. So wow. it's, it's a very singular art, cartooning. It's strange to me that it's in so many ways it's still seen as kind of this commercial medium because if it's handled by one cartoonist, there's very little that's m- as personal as that, except maybe being a novelist, yeah, um, or a painter. But it's. Uh, I mean, potentially it could be a very profoundly soul-plumbing form. Yeah. But but attempting to align cartooning with television didn't quite work out for you. Uh, what, 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 I mean, I'm curious about the ambitions behind this project. I, it's not really worth going into. It was, it, was, it was an experimental idea of dividing up time into really small segments of little teeny tiny television shows and, and having different directors and artists work on them based on characters I designed and developed and having the whole thing interrelate and tell an overall arching story. Yes. It, it might have worked, but I, I don't know if I could have uh, survived it necessarily. So, but. so, do you think that cartooning is perhaps the medium today that really is the best possibly to explicate or chronicle human behavior? I, no, I, no, I don't think there's any medium that's necessarily better or worse. There's... Every, every artistic discipline seems to have certain advantages over others. Uh, and in the mid-20th century, you know, there was a push towards making painting non-objective when painting for so long had been about trying to reproduce what the human eye sees. And one wonders, well, maybe did that really work? Or maybe it did work, you know, yeah. who knows? It's, it's just a matter of the individual artist to try to figure out the limits of each chosen medium. I do think the potential is certainly there because there's so many aspects of other media that have to interrelate and interplay in comics from writing to drawing to to sort of an implied sound to poetry to design to publishing all sorts of different things you can have you can represent a multi-layeredness of consciousness in comics uh with an ease and and a navigability that i think could possibly rival print but it can also lose some of the the natural uncertainty and ambiguity that print has and the words alone have so it's very labor in- intensive so but i could just be talking myself yes. up here as a cartoonist simply because i've thrown my lot in yeah. as a cartoonist but well i know i mean it's physically exhausting for you to do the work but i'm wondering you know what physical actions you do to like for example 
know what it is to have an amputated leg or a physical leg? I mean, do you walk around the house with the back of your leg tied up or something like that? I mean, how does this work? I, well, I how mean, do you know her? Any, any writing is an attempt to be empathetic. And as human beings, meeting other people, that's fundamentally what we do. We're all fiction writers. Everybody is a fiction writer. When you meet somebody, you try to create a sense of what kind of person that person is and that's fundamentally writing yeah. whether you call it writing or not that's i think that's where what writing is born from it's a sense of trying to understand other people and to if not only understand them but to also feel through them and feel for them and it's that's simply what one tries to do as a writer personally i broke both my legs in 1993 i think it was and was uh uh, spent a lot of time in my apartment sitting reading. Not that that would acquaint me with anything necessarily, but yeah. it certainly made me aware of how, well, what I, at that moment, how much easier it was to simply move. Uh, yeah. So. But it's interesting how you have Jimmy Corrigan with the crutch, and now you have this. It's obviously created a uh, lasting impression, so to speak. I guess, yeah. Without, I, no pun intended. It was not intentional. It just sort of happened. So I, I don't know what that's about necessarily, but I, it seems to be something that I can't help but do, I suppose. So. Giving the characters a frailty helps you to make them more human? Possibly, yeah. Maybe it's just sort of a cheap... I don't think so, though. I don't... Uh, you know, also you know, there, it, people come in all different sizes, stripes, and the human body, this human soul, can be contained by all sorts of different bodies. And uh, there's no reason why one is any better than the other. So, can the human soul be contained through an illustration? I don't know. I mean, that's certainly the aim of any. You certainly sort made of efforts right. to. <laughs> yeah, that's one hopes. So. Uh, well, Chris, thanks very much. It was a pleasure to chat. Well, thank you very much. I'm very flattered to be here.